0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to be together, isn't it? Again, I think I said this last time that I was up here. I don't get another opportunity to be around this many people who love Jesus any other time than when I'm with you guys. So it's always kind of a special privilege to be here. So what we're doing this morning is we are finishing up our current series of lessons, which is called Worth It, Living a Worthy Life. And what we've been doing in our time together on Sunday mornings for the last month is we've been looking at what it means to live a worthy life. It shouldn't come as a surprise to any of us that it's actually kind of difficult to be a Christian. It will cost you a lot. I know there are churches and people who try to spin that and say, oh, no, 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 you can really have your best life now. And there's an element of truth to that statement, but it's hard to follow Jesus. And the price tag is really, really high. And what we've done is we've looked at different elements of what a worthy life looks like i mean we're encouraged all over scripture to live a life worthy of the lord and so we've looked at different elements of that worthy life and what we've come away with in each one of those is that it's worth it it will cost you to follow jesus and to walk in a manner worthy of that calling but it is so worth it so today we're going to try to finish up this topic and we're going to look at persecution and yes i'm going to try to persuade you that persecution is worth it. That's a mighty big task, I know, but let's just see what, what we can find in Scripture. The first thing I want to show you is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Paul had this cheery little note to add to his letter to Timothy. He says, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay, so Paul is not vague in this. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What that means is, if you haven't been persecuted for your faith in Christ, there's only two possibilities. Either you just haven't been persecuted yet, and it will come, or maybe there's something wrong with your desire to follow Jesus and have a godly life. Because Paul doesn't say it's optional. Do you get anything optional out of that verse? He says it's going to happen. Okay, so maybe we better talk about it a little bit and get ready for this if it's going to happen. Let's start with asking the question, what is persecution? What is persecution? First thing I got to tell you is not every kind of opposition is persecution. Not everybody that pushes back on you or gives you a hard time is persecuting you. Persecution only occurs when someone is hurting you or trying to hurt you with their words, verbally or physically, because of an outright hostility toward you. Because of an outright hostility. People who are just being inconsiderate, you know, people that cut you off in traffic aren't persecuting you. People that refuse to agree with you are not persecuting you. People that won't let you have your way are not necessarily persecuting you. Why do I bring those up? Because over the years, I've heard people experiencing these things claim that they're being persecuted. But that's not really persecution. People who hurt you or harm you even without knowing you without some personal hostility or malice towards you, are not persecuting you. I'm not trying to take away from the damage that they do or how hard those situations are. But that's not persecution. That's not what Paul is warning us about. You see, persecution happens when someone knows what you stand for and objects to it enough to criticize you to attack you, verbally or physically, and maybe even kill you. It has to have an outright hostility. It has to be based upon knowing what you stand for. A few years back, I I met some, some missionaries that were training missionaries. These folks were largely from South Korea, and they were training missionaries to go into North Korea. And I got to talk and hang out with them for about a month. And I met several of the the missionaries that had actually gone into North Korea a couple of times trying to take the gospel and winning people to Christ. If you know much about North Korea, and at the time I really didn't, North Korea is brutal. Christianity is illegal. They think of their chairman Um, as as a deity, Christianity as a threat. And as I began to talk about just how hard it was, I started understanding persecution isn't the same in the United States as it is in other places. If you go back, and I would challenge you to look at this, if you go back and you look at the history of Christianity, not just in this country, but around the world, I think what you'll come to the conclusion, the same conclusion I came to, is that we have lived in a really odd little bubble in time and place as far as persecuting Christians. By and large, it's not that uncomfortable or dangerous to be a Christian in our country, in the United States. But that is really unique and odd in human history and in the history of the church. And it isn't the same everywhere in the world as it is here. The folks that I was talking to were telling the stories about how moms and dads that become Christians often won't tell their children that they're Christians because they don't just... Hate Christians there, they seek them out. And they're always afraid that their children might say something in the wrong place. And if someone hears that you're a Christian, you will be arrested. I was told they have these factories underground. And these factories are run by slave labor. People that are arrested for one reason or another. And a lot of them are Christians. And the Christians get it worse than anybody. I I was told there was one lady who married a man who managed to escape. Her name was Shinja and uh, she was about 80 years old and I called her Shinja, the ping pong ninja, because she was just this little woman and she beat me like a drum playing. I mean, she had me running everywhere, but she married a man that managed to escape this. So he had firsthand knowledge of what it was like to work in these factories underground. They hated Christians so much that they would seek them out to persecute them even further in these underground environments understand the life expectancy once you go into this underground factory to work for them is about two years, give or take. But Christians didn't usually make it that long. They were so hated that they would, they would chain their hands to their ankles and make them walk around. Anytime they weren't actively working on the, on a, on the assembly line, they chained their feet, their hands to their feet and make them the rest of the time that way. The reason for it is because they thought that our idea of God was that he was in the sky and they wanted to prevent them from being able to look up to their God. They would routinely come through the factory and stop the work and line people up and say, are you a Christian? And whenever a man would say, or a woman would say, yes, I'm a Christian, they would say, either you deny him right now or we're going to kill you right now. And they never would deny. And they would shoot them in the head. Then turn to the next one. You a Christian? You saw what we did to him. You going to deny? Boom. Shoot. Call all them out. There were even stories of them having hot molten lead poured down their throats. And they would line them up. You're next. Deny Christ or you get the same treatment. I'm telling you, we live in a society that is unique in human history. That we aren't facing that kind of aggressive and violent persecution as a rule in this country. But I don't know that we will always have this bubble. Persecution is real. And Paul says it's going to come. It's going to come to anybody who wants to live a godly life. Now let's look at what Jesus had to say about it. Matthew chapter 5. Verses 10 through 12. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Yeah, that applies to those North Koreans that are today being treated like I just described. Jesus says they're blessed. They're blessed when they're persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I don't know if you caught it or not, but there are about two groups of people that Jesus mentions here that are going to persecute you. The first ones are the ones that hate Jesus and will hate you because you love him. That's what he means about those that are getting persecuted on his account. There are some people that hate Jesus so bad that if you love him, and if you say anything about it, where it can be told, they're going to hate you because you love him. Anybody here faced that yet? I faced it. It's not fun, is it? But it is blessed, according to Jesus. The other group of people that are going to persecute you are the people who don't really care if you love Jesus or not. But they hate it when you stand up for righteousness. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So there are two groups of people out there that are going to come after Christians. The ones that hate Jesus and will hate you for loving him, and those that hate righteousness when you stand up for it. You with me? But Jesus says that you're blessed whenever you're persecuted for either of those two. Now, we've talked about that before in here. The, the word that Jesus used is a Greek word, makarios, and it means you're in a good place. Strange as it sounds, Jesus thinks you're in a good place whenever you face persecution. How can that be? Well, first of all, where I took this Matthew 5 passage from, is the last one of the Beatitudes. You've heard of those before, right? In the Beatitudes, it's the opening statements that Jesus makes about on the, on the Sermon on the Mount. And they are eight brief statements about the values in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven. And he's telling this, us about what we should value as members of his kingdom. And as strange as it sounds, what Jesus is saying is that we should value Persecution. At least when it comes to being a Christian. I don't think that Jesus is saying that we ought to just be happy about being persecuted for all kinds of things. I'm a Cubs fan. And for years, the Cubs were the laughing stock of the baseball world. I don't know if I could truly say it measures up to the, the point of persecution, but I certainly took a lot of, of abuse for being a Cubs fan. I'm not certain that Jesus says you're blessed to be a Cubs fan because you're getting that kind of abuse. I'm, I wouldn't press it that far. I don't think that we should value being persecuted just for the sake of being persecuted. In fact, Peter warns us that we should never value persecution when it comes because we're murderers or thieves or because we're not being righteous, but we should definitely value it whenever it comes because of the name of Christ, when it comes because of following Jesus. And Jesus says that when you're persecuted for him, you're in a good place. So why is it a good place? Why is it a good place to actually be persecuted? Well, two reasons that I can think of. The first one you'll find right there in the passage that we looked at in Matthew 5. It's because your reward is great in heaven. And rewards in heaven last forever. I mean, there are things that we do sometimes for applause. Or for a pat on the back. Or maybe for money and the ability to buy things, a crown of some sort or a medal. But those things are always really short. They don't last, do they? If you've ever had anybody clap for you, when the applause dies, your reward is over. If you've been given money for something as a reward, when the money is spent, your reward is over. That's not the way it is whenever you're standing up for persecution. Whenever you're walking in a way that is worthy of persecution, that reward lasts forever in heaven. Apparently, someone must have got Jesus' words to those Koreans in North Korea. Because they were not willing to back down and try to have a better life here and surrender the reward that's waiting for them in heaven. The other thing about why I think you're in a good place is because it it confirms that you're actually living a holy life and not a common one. In some sort of way, persecution is a validation of sorts. There's usually a reason why you're persecuted. Jesus said that, he says, they persecuted the prophets this way. That's what he said there in Matthew 5. That's why you're in a good place, because you're in good company. You're in good company whenever you're being persecuted for righteousness sake or for loving Jesus. By contrast, and and I think sometimes we flip the script and we get this backwards. Look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter six, verse 26. I don't know if I have it in your notes or not, but Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so they did to the false prophets. I had a, had a young man a, a couple of years ago came to me, he says, listen, you know, uh, I just read this verse about, you know, warning me whenever people all speak well of you. And I gotta let you know, I've been avoiding you because of so many people that speak bad of you. Other Christians, other churches. And I've listened to what they've said and the stuff they're complaining about, I see where you got it out of scripture. But I just assumed with so many people, throwing rocks at you that there was a problem with you. And now what I can see from Jesus' teaching is there would be a problem if they weren't. If they weren't throwing rocks. And sometimes what we do is we stay silent rather than standing up for something. And I'm not saying that I've done this so well. I'm working on this just like you guys are. But I've been put in a corner a few too many times and stood up and I got shot at. That's just one of the things that comes with with leadership. Ask Gary, ask Tim, ask Bob. Ask Bob. You guys have all faced it too. It's just part of it because it comes to anyone who desires to live a godly life. Paul promised that. But how many times do we have the idea that you're better off if nobody ever says anything bad about you? And how many times do we labor under the false assumption that I've got to silence my critics either by pleasing them or putting them in their place so that they don't say anything bad about me? And how many times do we shrink back so that no one will say anything bad about us. And Jesus warns against us, you're not in a good place whenever nobody speaks bad of you. You are in a good place whenever they do persecute you. Why? Well, they persecuted the prophets. You're in good company. That's what happens to God's people. They get persecuted. But the false prophets, nobody had anything bad to say about them, apparently. See, false prophets told people what they wanted to hear which made them popular with people, but not popular with God. I think there's something there for us to grab onto. It's being spoken well of by everyone isn't a good thing. It's not a good place. First Peter 4, 14, Peter says, If you're insulted for the name of Christ, then you're blessed. You're in a good place, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So there's two reasons why I can find in Scripture that you're in a good place, like Jesus says, whenever you're persecuted for righteousness' sake or for him, for loving him on his account. One, because your reward in heaven is great, and that reward will last forever. And the other is because it's a confirmation that you're living a holy life and not a common one, that you bear the marks, the signs of the Spirit of glory and of God. Those are pretty good things. So how, here's our question that we gotta deal with now is, how do I walk in a way, in a manner that is worthy of persecution? Sounds pretty counterintuitive, doesn't it? I am not trying to convince you to go out and get persecuted. I'm not trying to say, yippee, I'm excited, I'll get a chance to be stoned. And I'm not talking like, you know, that kind of stoned. I'm talking about like, you know, actual geologic formations. You know, or shot at. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to convince you to go out and just get beat up, but I'm trying to tell you it's coming. It is coming. If you desire a godly life, it's coming. Paul promised it. And you shouldn't be afraid of it. And you need to know that if you can walk worthy of it, it's coming and it's worth it. So how do we walk in a way that's worthy of this kind of persecution that Jesus tells us about and Paul tells us about? I got three points for you. The first one is, I walk worthy of persecution when I welcome purification. When I welcome purification. I mean, it's one thing to just endure. It's another thing to welcome it. Why the word purification? Well, I'll show you this verse. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. I circled the fiery trial and to test you, to draw your attention to those words. Because those words in their original language are part of the smelting process. And we've talked about that before. You guys know what smelting is about, right? It's how you purify metal. So like if we were to strike it rich, we're we're digging a pit for the fall fest out there and we hit a vein of gold. Well, we'd pay off the building. That'd be great. (laughs) But for it to really get its maximum worth, we would have to put that ore through a smelting process, which involves heat. We would heat up the metal. And what would happen is that the impurities would separate from the really good stuff. And then you get a chance to pull off what they call the dross. And you're left with something more precious, more refined, that's worth even more. And that's what he's talking about here. That's the imagery that Peter's giving us. He says, don't be surprised when you go through this as though it was strange that it's happening to you, but rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory was revealed. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, that's the qualifier. It's not about just being persecuted because of your political preferences or your sports team affiliations. This is about being persecuted because you're a Christian. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What does he mean by that? That you're worthy to be called a Christian. That you're walking in such a manner that it's worthy to be called a Christian and to suffer persecution for doing so. That's what he's getting at. And then he says this very curious statement in verse 17. He says, because it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. I had to dig into this one to figure out what he was talking about. But that phrase is referring back to the the fiery trial. Because the word judgment that he uses there doesn't necessarily mean condemnation. It's actually a much broader term which includes approval. Or discipline. What Peter is saying is that Christians are being purified and strengthened by this fiery trial. By persecution even. That sins are being eliminated. And that trust in God and holiness of life are growing. And it's beginning with the house of God. He goes on to 19, he says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will... Yes, sometimes we suffer and face persecution because it's a part of God's will. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's important, I mean that, I, there's just so many so many things to talk about in this verse, and I got to restrict it because we don't have all morning to do it. But you're on the anvil If you're a Christian and you're facing persecutions and trials and troubles, you're not supposed to think it's strange because this is how God smelts you and brings out the value in your faith, brings out the resemblance to him and to Jesus. It's according to his will because he's a faithful creator and he uses things just like this to create you in the image of God. So I think there's cause to rejoice. I think that's his point in telling us this. But for me to rejoice in it, I'm going to have to welcome this purification process. I can't be screaming about it, complaining about it, and trying to avoid it on every turn. And did you notice that he ends up his thought here with saying that we have to trust God while we keep on doing good. What's the aim of persecution? To get you to stop. Isn't that so? They want you to close your mouth. Stop talking about the gospel. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop talking about the life of faith. Stop loving people and start acting like the rest of them. And when you refuse, they'll put pressure. And they'll put more pressure. It might even turn into persecution. And that's okay because God will use it like a smelting furnace to make you more and more like him. So the second thing, I walk worthy of persecution when I pray instead of pout or pounce. When I pray instead of pout or pounce. I'm not trying to be cute with the words here. But I have seen brothers go through trials and tribulations and even persecution. And the two most frequent things I see them do are pouting and, and portray themselves as a victim. Woe is me and why am I going through all this hardship? And the other thing is not always in either war. Sometimes they do both act the victim and then turn into being very aggressive against their persecutors. And they want to pounce and they want to fight back. And neither one of those are worthy of the persecution. Neither one of those are worthy of the life that God has called us to. Well, what he's called us to do is in those circumstances. Instead of pouting or pouncing, we are to pray. Check out what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says in verses 44 through 48, he says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I'm not making it up, am I? He goes on, he says, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. He gives us the reason why we're supposed to pray for our persecutors rather than pout or pounce. Because we're supposed to be sons of our father in heaven. The imagery here is is that there's a family resemblance. You catch that? To be the son of someone, to be seen as the son of someone, is bearing a family resemblance. This goes all the way back to God's original design for humanity when he created us to be image bearers. And guess when we look like God? We bear a family resemblance when we refuse to pout and play the victim and we refuse to retaliate and pounce. But instead we choose to pray for our oppressors and our persecutors. He goes on, he says, listen to this description of how God handles himself. This is the family resemblance that he's calling us to. He says, for he, God, makes his son rise on the evil and the good. God could selectively send sunshine. He could bring up the sun only for the good people. He doesn't do that. He brings up for the good. He brings up the sun and puts it on the good people and the evil people. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Remember rewards in heaven? Great is your reward in heaven. Rewards there last forever. If you're only good to those that are good back to you, your reward is over as soon as it began. That's just normal with this world. He says, don't even, don't even the tax collectors do the same? In Borsett, verse 47, he says, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is that last sentence a little intimidating? Don't let it intimidate you because the word that Jesus uses there that we translate into English as perfect is the Greek word "telios," And it means complete or mature. God wants us to be complete. He wants us to be mature. He wants us to be like Him. And no one will ever persecute us the way they tried to persecute God. Look what they did to Jesus. We will never... Even if someone was to treat us as bad as they treated Jesus, we kind of deserve it because we're not innocent. There will never be a way to be as violated as God was. As God still is. And yet he sends his sunshine on the evil and the good. He sends his rain to the just and the unjust. And he calls us to be the same way. So when we face persecution and it is coming. If you haven't experienced it, you will. Either that or else you're going to have to abandon this pursuit of a godly life. And that's not a very good place to be. If you want to stay in that good place that Jesus is talking about. Then persecution is coming your way. And when it comes... To be worthy of that persecution, you have to pray instead of pout or pounce. Last point I want to show you this morning. I walk in a manner worthy of persecution when I take pleasure in the pressure. When I take pleasure in the pressure. I'm telling you, this is is a big... A big request in some ways, it feels like to me. Because it's going beyond enduring and grimacing and griping and complaining. This is actually learning how to take pleasure in the pressure that comes from persecution and weaknesses. Where do I get the gall to make that statement? Well, I get it from Paul. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10. Paul says, therefore, I take pleasure. I take pleasure in weaknesses. In injuries, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Does that last little statement there confuse you? For when I'm weak, then I'm strong? That one isn't immediately obvious to me. I'll tell you what I think it means. You do your own thinking. See if this has got merit or maybe you can come up with a better explanation. But what I get from it is that (sighs) trusting Jesus, I mean, really, really trusting Jesus is hard. It takes strength to be weak. It takes a strength that none of us possess in and of ourselves. It takes a strength that can only come from Christ himself. See, we naturally like to stand tall, don't we? We naturally want to have our act together or to be seen as having our act together. And we absolutely hate it when we look like a loser and when others paint us to be a loser. Doesn't that hurt and bother you? It does me. But Paul said that he could take pleasure in all those things that we hate. He could take pleasure in all those things that we hate, including persecution, because he knows that it takes real Christ-given strength to endure those things for him. And one last passage I want to show you this morning. Saint Paul wrote, this is the last one I read to you. It's in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. And there Paul says, every test that you have experienced is the kind that normally comes to people. Nothing unusual. It's kind of what Peter was saying, right? Nothing that you've experienced is the kind that normally comes, or every test that you have experienced is the kind that normally comes to people. But God keeps his promise. And he will not allow you to be tested beyond your power to remain firm. At the time that you're put to the test, he will give you the strength to endure it. And so provide you with a way out. Different translations handle this passage a little differently. The NIV makes it sound like God's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you can endure. So instead of having to go through that temptation, he's going to give you an exit ramp, an exit strategy, so you don't have to go through this. But I looked at the, the underlying words behind this, and I think this might be the most faithful translation of this passage of what I get out of it is God has got you on the anvil. If you're going to follow you, follow him. He's going to allow you to go through that smelting process and face fiery trials of all kinds, including persecutions to make your faith more precious, to make your resemblance of Jesus more true, to make you complete, to make you mature, And he's not going to allow you to stay on the fire beyond your ability to stand firm. But when it happens, when it's going on, guys, he will provide you with the strength that you need to endure it because that's how you're going to get through it. We can't run away from persecution and expect to be transformed. We can't expect to be transformed and and to become like Christ if we keep running away from the fiery trials and the tests that come. We have to learn how to take pleasure in the in the pressure. I'm going to close out by telling you a story of a man I met a few years back. A man from Nepal. His name was Dilly. Is Dilly. Dilly uh, basically does for his church in Nepal about what Tim and Gary and I try to do here for this congregation. It doesn't look the same because they're in Nepal. They're in a different culture and stuff. So as I'm talking with him about the work of of serving the Lord and trying to serve others. I just asked him, Dilly, how did you become a Christian? He lightens up. And he says, oh, I wasn't always a Christian. That's true. See, Dilly began to tell me this story. In Nepal, it is illegal to be a Christian. It's it's a, it's a crime they'll throw you in jail for it, punish you severely for it. But not only that, but Dilly was from a family of Hindu priests. His dad, his dad's dad, his dad's dad's dad, on down the line had all been Hindu priests. And even though Dili himself wasn't the oldest son, he was for some reason selected to be the next priest in the next generation and not just a normal Hindu priest. Dili was supposed to be a priest of note with responsibility over a geographic area. In other words, he had been hand-selected to be a big deal in the Hindu religion in Nepal. But Dilly met some Christians. And they treated him different than other people. They accepted him. They showed him love and respect. And they began to share with him the gospel of what God had already started to do to fix this fallen and broken world, about what a new creation is all about, about this present age and the age to come. And they told him, you can be a part of it. God doesn't discriminate, he, he won't keep anybody from being a part of this, but you've got to surrender it all. You've got to be born again. You've got to be a real follower of Jesus. And Dilly said, I'll do it. And he said he knew he was in trouble, that he was going to have trouble the minute he said yes, and he said, I I, I did it knowing that trouble was coming my way. He said how he talked about how much he was nervous about having this confrontation with his dad. Because he had to go tell his dad, not only am I not going to do the Hindu priest thing, I'm actually serving Jesus, I'm a Christian. His dad's response was not good. His dad was furious. And he tried to put every kind of pressure he could on him to get him to renounce Jesus and to come back into the Hindu faith. And Dilly said no. And it became persecution. Eventually, Dilly's dad sent out men to kill him. Think about this. Your own dad sends out a hit squad. And he said, the first time that they caught me, they they gave me a chance to renounce Jesus. And here's the peculiar thing. I'm looking, I mean, I'm into this story because he's telling me this. So I'm looking at Dilly's eyes and I'm expecting to see sorrow and loss and the victim thing. What I see in the man is his eyes began to dance and his smile, he had an infectious smile. His smile broadened. And he was getting excited, and I thought, what kind of weirdo are you? And he began to say, the first time they got a hold of me, they beat me up pretty good, because I wouldn't renounce. The next time they came, they beat me up a little worse. There was hospital time. The next time they came, they thought I would crack. I didn't crack. And they beat me up bad again. This went on and on. And as Dilly is telling me the story, he's just more excited about it. And he said, man, after everything that Jesus has done for me, what an honor to get to do this for him. What an honor to be counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. And I have felt a mixture of awe and shame. Then he told me about The last time that they came to kill him. Apparently they caught him down by the river. And they didn't beat him this time. The guys drug him out into the river and said, we're going to drown you. This is it. We were hoping that you would renounce and return to Hinduism. It's obvious to us that you're not. We're going to give you one last chance, but you're going to die today. And Dilly says, I know. I've been expecting it. I want you guys to know. I understand why you're doing it. I don't hold it against you. And in fact, I'm going to ask Jesus to not hold it against you either. Because I don't think you understand what's going on. So let's do this. They hold him under the water. And he's struggling. Naturally, just trying to kick back. They bring him up. Renounce. No. He said he actually laughed. They put him back under the water again. This went on like four or five times and he's exhausted. And the last time they said, well, this is it. We've given you every chance we could. We're killing you now. He says, okay. They put him under the water, and he said, I just relaxed. Fighting was using up the oxygen I could hold, and I thought, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to die. said he relaxed, and then he thought, am I dead? Because everything got kind of quiet. And then his he kind of floated up, and his face broke the water, he realized he was still alive, and these guys were walking off. And they haven't bothered him again. And his reaction was, what a blessing it was to be able to witness to them who my Lord is. I'm so grateful that God didn't allow me to break. And the man is giddy telling me this story. See, I think, I think it's harder for us in in an environment like this sometimes to really embrace what's on the line than it is in a place where you really are at the gunpoint or the nice edge. Dilly must have understood everything that we're talking about in this lesson. We've got brothers and sisters in North Korea that are facing this kind of persecution with the same mindset that I saw in Dilly. I've talked to some of them. We've got people in the Sudan who are going through horrible atrocities. China, and the embarrassing thing is, guys, in all those countries, the church is growing faster. Christianity is spreading. And here, where it's relatively easy, I'm not worried about someone taking me down to the river and drowning me for being a Christian. I'm worried about them hurting my feelings. What about you? You're in a good place when you walk in a manner worthy of persecution. I hope you believe it and not fear it. Stop trying to avoid it. And to live that life This shows that you love Jesus and that you stand up for righteousness and let God bring you through whatever fires He needs to bring you through because He knows what He's doing. He's a faithful creator. If you would, bow with me and we'll be done this morning. Heavenly Father, um, it's a challenging thought to face persecution in that way. To not surrender to the temptation to feel we're being picked on to not pout and to not retaliate, but instead to be excited to be counted worthy, to be excited to be identified as walking in a way that's worthy to be persecuted. Father, I pray that you'll change the way we think about the Christian life and the life that's worthy, living in a way that's worthy of what you've called us to. I pray that you'll help us to not try to short sell the price that we have to pay, But Father, I pray that you'll help us to realize that it is worth more than anything this world has got to offer to walk worthy of the life that you've called us to. Father, I pray that you'll help us to resist the temptation to cut and run or to avoid standing up when the opportunity presents itself because we're afraid of the pushback. Instead, Father, I pray that we will gently and humbly stand up for you, for Jesus, for righteousness, and let you do what you do those circumstances. Help us to trust you that way. Father, I pray that we will see your kingdom explode in this country and in this neighborhood and in our homes, in our schools, that we will truly live like the new humanity, that we will truly surrender this life and grab onto the life that is truly life. It's in Jesus' name I'm praying. Amen.